Welcome to Season 8 of the Keeping Things Alive podcast out of Western New York. My name is Laura Evans. I'm a former environmental lawyer, current natural resources planner, animal lover, and gardener. I'm also the author of Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law, which is available as an ebook, paperback, and audiobook. The Keeping Things Alive podcast is here to explore the opportunities and challenges as we all live together on this beautiful, living, and interconnected planet Earth. Hello and welcome to another episode of Season 8 of the Keeping Things Alive podcast. Today is the morning of September 4th, 2023, which is a Monday and it's Labor Day. So I really wanted to publish this particular podcast episode with my friend Kelly Camacho today on Labor Day because it does feel very connected. We have met through... um, our former employer, which we didn't actually work at at the same time, but I feel like our our relationship has uh, grown out of labor and now we are still friends and still navigating through what it means to, yep, earn money and be in capitalism in 2023, especially when you deeply care about sustainability and the earth, so much so that both Kelly and I did study, um, and for me it was natural resources, for Kelly it was environmental studies in undergrad, and now just, yeah, being a human being that cares about the earth, people, and what happens um, now and in the future, and trying to make the world a better place. So Kelly and I both have been weaving in and out of different roles based on um, a lot of that sort of desire. And so it's been really good to meet with her, connect with her, and do work with her over the years. She really supported me a lot with my book, Silent Seasons, last year, as well as this podcast she's always been really enthusiastic about. And so I've wanted to have her on to talk about her background and her stories now for a few years. And it finally has come together. And I'm really happy to share this interview and conversation that I had with her. It was just on Saturday, so about two days ago. And yeah, I've been really trying to interview people and then put them out, put out those conversations as quickly as possible and try to, yeah, stick with the times because it is interesting how these conversations, like they do, um, they're the most potent (laughs) when they are first recorded. And then there's always words of wisdom over time to come back to, but I, I do like what happens when it's super fresh. So Kelly Camacho is an organizer for the New York State United Teachers Union that's called NYSET. And this is a new role for Kelly. She's only been there since the summer. She formerly was a, and we get into this, she talks about it in our conversation, but she was a community organizer for Citizen Action, as well as a climate justice organizer for Push Buffalo. So I also worked for Push Buffalo a few years ago and we didn't work there at the same time but our paths have definitely crossed um, because of that common commonality and so 
yeah, it's just, it's been good to watch her grow and change and be a part of honestly different labor issues in the nonprofit workplace. And that is something that I really talk about a lot in chapter eight of Silent Seasons. And so, yeah, if you want a connection to the book of what we are talking about in this episode, you can look there. Um, Yeah, I really do appreciate the way that Kelly shows up for people, for the planet. Um, She talks a lot about the U.S. colony of Puerto Rico, as well as the economic embargo in Cuba. Kelly recently took a trip to Cuba with Pastors of Peace, and I really did want to talk to her um, for this episode a lot about what she experienced there, what she saw, especially in light of sustainability and just differences between the U.S. and Cuba. But I, um, yeah, she just, she has so much to say. She has so much knowledge. She's a very artistic person and very articulate. And so I'm really excited for you to get to know her and to follow more of her work because she is always really speaking up for people and really I just deeply admire her for all of her uh, work to make the world a better place. You should definitely find Kelly on social media. She has a lot of resources. Um, Right now she just acquired a lot of tenant advocacy uh, guides that she can give you and she's also working on some political education pieces. So yeah, just a really good person to know. I'm always inspired when I talk to her. So please enjoy my conversation with Kelly Camacho. All right. Hi, Kelly. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm good. Welcome to the yeah Keeping Things Alive podcast. Thank you for being here. I will start with my first question, and that is, where did you grow up and what was that like? Yeah. Um. So... We have an interesting family dynamic. So I am actually the only person in my immediate family that is like from Buffalo, born in Buffalo. Okay. Um, my parents are from New York City. They're from Brooklyn and the Bronx. Um, my grandparents, one was born in Puerto Rico, one was born in New York City. And I think they have a very New York City love story where like they met in, uh, they met at Coney Island. Okay. Uh, I don't know exceptional amounts of details about that, but I always thought it was cute. Yeah. It seems like such a little movie thing to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, my parents ended up moving to Buffalo because my aunt was going to UB at the time. And my parents wanted to go somewhere that seemed a little bit safer than where they were in the city. Mm. Uh, so they moved to Buffalo and they moved around on Stockbridge Ave off Bailey for quite a while until they were able to to get a house and at the time I was probably I was probably like an infant when we first moved into the house that my parents were able to buy Uh, it was one that burnt down and then it was rebuilt by the city I think and there was some kind of grant program that was able to help my parents get their first home okay yeah so they went from being like New York City apartment people to now they have their own home Mm. uh so I grew up off off Bailey Ave uh in University District Mm -hmm. um and when I talk about where I live I definitely talk about like a lot of the lack of resources that were available to me when growing up um very visibly, we had a lot more like pawn shops and mm. uh, for-profit businesses in the area, uh, but a lot of things like that were community resources, like the 
public libraries, I saw a lot of those kinds of things shut down. Mm. Um, even like the places that used to be banks, like now those are pawn shops as well. Um, so just really you've yeah. seen this exodus of just business and community from the area. What decade was this that you were seeing this? Uh, so I was born in 95. Uh, so a lot of my experience is from the early 2000s. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and something that I don't think I've talked about a lot when talking about like my upbringing um, is actually like, the involvement in like the Catholic church. Mm. Um, so because we were like a poor family in the area, uh, my, my mom in typical, like I think Latina mom fashion, you know, she found a immense sense of community in church. And so, right. uh, I grew up in, uh, St. James, uh, which is on Bailey. You can see it, uh, when you drive up and down Bailey, it's still there, but it's not the same church. Mm. Um, long story short, St. James ended up had to close, having to close down because of like a lack of funding. Okay. Um, but I spent a lot of time in that church. And what is really different about when I was at St. James versus kind of the time after that, when my family was looking for a different church and like trying to find their spot in Buffalo, um, St. James was one of the only churches that was really like racially diverse, age diverse, and just a really community based church Mm. it's not one that i've been able to find very often in buffalo right um and so when i think back on how i got to be kind of the person that i am today i i really think of saint james having to do a lot with that Mm. um they're the reason i had access to so many different types of people when i was young and i think it really solidified how i feel about community work because We were poor. And so a lot of my memories were associated with either like free programming from the church or Mm -hmm. like services where we would help people pack like Thanksgiving dinners. And um, my family would always volunteer our time to make sure that we helped. But then also we were one of the poor families that like needed a Thanksgiving dinner box. Received it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so... I haven't really talked a lot about my experiences in the church, but I guess it's kind of been on my mind a lot more lately just because I've been thinking a lot more about like the, the solidarity versus charity Mm, mentality. Right. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. I would say I also, I mean, I've had a, yeah, church like upbringing that I feel like I just sort of left it behind in a lot of ways. Like I was just like, okay, I'm, you know, out of my house as a teenager and that's it but yeah as I get older and yeah looking back I'm like oh that really did have a big impact on me like I went and spent a couple hours like once a week or twice a week like every week for my whole childhood and yeah just thinking about the impact that has and yeah to be able to see like the giving and receiving in a yep yeah so I guess what would you say about um, what did you say? Charity versus solidarity? Was yeah. that it? Yeah. Where are you at with that? Yeah. So it's definitely something that's been on my mind a lot, like doing doing organizing work and really starting off as someone who was just learning how to organize versus me now a bit more uh, experienced in organizing. And mm-hmm. so um, one of the things that my mentors have really been hard on me is, uh, you know, are, the idea of like, are you creating leaders? Because mm. at the end of the day, if you are you see someone on the street and like you give them 50 bucks that's that's charity you are a helper you are helping someone um but it kind of stops there yeah um solidarity is being like all right i'm gonna help you get xyz and 
that's going to help you get to this next phase where you can do X, Y, Z. It's it's the planning and the and the resource sharing. It's, it's like not building. just yeah. It's not just one stop shop. Right. Yeah. And giving it sounds like more like tools and like opportunity and leverage. And yeah, you're building with a person instead of it's like instead of just giving them like a band aid or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. That's really good. Um, well, so yeah, you just brought up organizing. And the next question is, what is your work now? And then how has that evolved over the years? But I'm I'm always curious about like what people's definition of organizing is. So if you want to start there or however you want to talk about your work. Um, yeah, I'm here to listen. Um, so I've definitely heard organizing defined a couple ways. When I think about organizing, I think of it in just the sense of you're someone who moves people and you are trying to achieve something. Mm-hmm. Um, I really think that anybody can do it. I think uh, there's been a long, amazing history in in our area, in international spotlights, where it's really just people of the community doing work with each other and building something different. Um so for me starting out, uh, when I first started organizing, uh, it was after I had graduated from University of Buffalo. I got my degree in environmental studies, which um, some people feel sometimes <laughs> makes you a little bit unrelatable when you talk about your degree. But I will talk about my degree because I'm a beautiful brown woman. And like a lot of people did not think I could get that piece of paper. And I did. <laughs> yeah. No, I I want to. I mean, maybe it's a future like farther down question. But yeah, I definitely want to talk about environmental ecology and sustainability. So yeah, yeah your perspective is really important. And yeah, how it does show up in your work now, because I for me, like the environment is everything. So and it's people so yeah Yeah. yeah, you're with people (laughs) so uh, my work does look a little bit different these days so I graduated with my degree in environmental studies it is on my my mom's living room wall Uh, I don't have it she has it (laughs) that's awesome yeah Yeah. Uh, she some would say is the real uh, deserving recipient behind that degree Uh, shout out to our moms (laughs) right yep Um, but when I first started working, um, I wanted to work for a nonprofit. I knew I didn't want to go private sector immediately. I wanted to feel like I was doing something to make the community better. Mm. Um, and so I was a bit more environmental focused when I first started my career. Uh, I got pretty lucky. My first like salaried position was uh, doing uh, climate justice work for Push Buffalo. Um, after that, I ended up kind of being faced with the realities of thinking about what working for nonprofits looks like. Yeah. Um, I think that working for the nonprofit industry is very complex because you're really faced with the reality of the work that you want to do versus the work that you are paid to do and thus allowed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that's where I really like, I think I started to get more radical in how I viewed my participation in the work. Um, I wanted to take a little bit of like a, a brief break from organizing after that. And I, I took a little pause. I went back to working for like the the Buffalo Museum of Science. Oh, right. Yeah. yeah. That only lasted for a few months because uh, I'm the kind of person where I really like a challenge. I like to be feeling mm-hmm. like I'm making a difference. And it was very much a big fish in a small pond. And I was not yeah. happy. Uh, So pretty soon after that, I was able to get out. Um, I went and was working uh, as an organizer for Citizen Action. uh, And I went through the unionization process at at Citizen Action. Um, Mm. 
which I was then again faced with the reality of what does my role in working in the movement look like as a paid organizer? Because again, you're just so bound by what a funder has allowed you to work on. And so mm-hmm. oftentimes those funders are old, rich white people. Yeah. And how far are we as radical, like black and brown people able to move the work if the only work we're allowed to move is what white funders allow us to do? Yeah. Yep. I I'm definitely sitting here agreeing with you and I, I definitely witness that with my own um yeah, witnessing and working in nonprofits at Push Buffalo too. And yeah, I I have not made full peace with it or just been able yeah, it is very complicated to navigate through and like how do you show up authentically? Mm-hmm. Um if you don't really know what the ultimate agenda is. And then there's so many good people that are like doing really like they're trying really hard yeah. <laughs> um, in the midst of it that you really care about. So yeah, it's, I, I'm right there with you on yeah. this. Yeah. Yep. It, it's definitely really complicated. Um, and I don't think any of us are ever going to have the perfect answer to what being a radical in, in this work looks like. Um, I actually, uh, I've now taken a step into, to union labor, um, and trying to get places to unionize, which for me, taking the step into labor, I really am at a point in my career where I want to focus on how can I achieve like the most good for people with the skills that I have to offer. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's now two, two different things. So there's the work that I do by day, which is I'm really going to be focused on making sure that I can get like as many black and brown, like low income people into unions. So this way they have like better pay, well, typically on average, better pay. Um, People of color stay at jobs longer when they're unionized. And I really want to focus on that break in like the generational poverty cycle where if we can get yeah. someone like a good paid job that's going to that's going to help them take care of their family like that that breaks so many different trauma cycles that are so ingrained in our lives. Right. Yeah, how so I think it's interesting. I I'm going to try to get well, again, I shouldn't be working too hard in like production production, but it's Labor Day weekend this weekend. So, yeah, you're in the middle of a lot of unionizing work and you're also like this is a relatively new job for you, so you're in the middle of training and I guess mm-hmm. I'm curious like what have you learned about labor and unionizing and the labor movement um just in the past like couple of months and and how I guess also from your perspective of working on like the unionization like in the nonprofit work um, yeah um ooh, okay so <laughs> working for the unionization process in nonprofit work was a super eye-opening experience um it's interesting to look at because it's these organizations that swear up and down that they're really aligned with like progressive values that we want to see justice built we want to we want to radically change the way we live but when it comes to their workers they don't they don't care yeah um they're more than okay aren't really yeah they're more than okay burning out like a couple good people and there's this constant like turnover cycle where it's just like we'll burn out these great people who come in here with these great ideas and Mm -hmm. so much energy and want just a place to use them and then we take that energy we put as much work as possible because they love the community. So don't you want to exactly. do it for the community? Yeah. Um, and a then, lot of guilt there. <laughs> yeah. And then we just keep burning them out yeah. until the next 
organizers apply and these people get frustrated and they're just tired and quit and it's just a never-ending turnover cycle and it's honestly pretty disgusting and until our nonprofits that have these social justice platform really look at how they treat their workers and come up with a better way of treating their workers that's mm-hmm. actually like very democratic and not this idea of like top down hierarchy. Right. And I mean, I would just say humane, like, mm-hmm. yeah, just, yeah respect for workers rights would be yeah yeah i think <laughs> really the, really the, refreshing i was shocked too um, yeah yeah one of the things that really sticks out from like my time at citizen action was this idea of don't talk out talk up and it was the idea that like you shouldn't talk to your coworkers about how you're being treated mm. at work you should only talk up to management about it so if you don't like their behaviors you should be talking to them about it instead of Actually talking to your coworkers and understanding that there are patterns of how they're treating you and Mm -hmm. that this is exactly how they want to be treating you. Right. Well, it's like, yeah, organize your community, but not your fellow workers who aren't your community. Like, to me, I don't know. It's just a weird, yeah. Yep divide yep. no it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense when you think of the work that we're trying to accomplish so um it's okay. kind of so yeah sorry i'm like we could talk about this a long time um so with um that now you've had that experience and it is like shocking and I, then now with like mm. a more explicit like unionizing role and stuff what are you focused on or learning right now yeah so I'm really excited so I'm going to be focused on trying to help some charter schools in the area unionize just because um, you know we've got a great Buffalo public school system uh, we've got BTF we've got great great systems in place great contact contracts is BTF is Buffalo Teacher Federation yeah. okay Buffalo Teacher Federation. so that's like Buffalo Public Schools has their mm-hmm. union. Okay. But then charter schools don't. Charter schools don't. And okay. they get a lot more money because they're this like privatized form of education. Mm. Um, so in reality, they could be making a lot of money. They could have great benefits. They could really be like upholding how we do education. But mm. we don't because people want to make money. Yeah. And it's not the teachers that are the ones that are making money. Yeah. How do you – I mean – how do you make a charter school? Like you make a charter? Like I don't even know what a charter is. But. Yeah. And so there's really not a ton of like supervision of how some of these places are created. And okay. they, so they have a lot more uh, wiggle room to kind of do okay. whatever they so want. So they can be kind of different than yep. too. Okay. I've heard of uh, folks who have created schools and then they just create positions for their family members and friends in those schools. And they can make as much money as they want because there's not really anybody who mm-hmm. is watching over this. Right right less yeah standards and Mm -hmm. do they have to follow new york state standards that's interesting yeah i don't know but basically to focus on the labor like then they do have all these employees and stuff that yeah are just sort of at the whim of what management is gonna do yeah and it's really cool to see um just some of the like contracts that other schools have seen like Mm. i have read through some of my very first contracts and okay seeing that you can really change the way your workplace is run if there are specific things that your workplace needs you can get that in a contract like one of the things I was surprised to see was um, I spent a lot of time around like my mom who's special education teacher Mm. and some of these contracts had like designated amounts of time like per amount of students with IEPs that you have you get x amount of time to be able to work on IEPs Mm. and you can't be like put to work on anything else it has to be just for IEPs right and so there's just so many ways that we can take a chunk out of some of this overwork some of these benefit issues and it it all comes back to union labor right um and so some of the things that I've been learning about the labor movement in general has just been how like racism we know affects so many aspects of our lives but 
learning how it's been such an intentional tool in labor to keep people apart, uh, to really just have that us versus them narrative where it's like, oh, well, the reason you don't make more is because of that group of people who don't look like you over there. Mm -hmm. And so like, "Mm, we're not going to pay you more. And it's such an easy way of just like dodging responsibility. Right, right. Okay. No, thank you for all of that. That's super helpful. Okay. So I'm wanting to shift it now to your recent travels, like with the New York state, like for your trainings or, and then definitely abroad outside of the U S um, yeah. Where did you go? What has stood out to you and what have you learned? Yeah. Uh, so I will start with Cuba cause that was just like the, the biggest thing that's yeah. fresh in my mind. Yeah. When did you go? Um, so I went in July for two weeks. Sweet. Um, so that was, I mean, we we're early September. So it was like, a month and a half ago, month yeah. ago. Yeah. Okay. Pretty recent. Yeah. Um, and what was really great about that was I got to go with Pastors for Peace, um, which uh, on the face, it kind of sounds like mission trip-esque, which mm. I wasn't going over there to promote religion. I do not identify with any specific like organized religion. Um, it's just a group of people who believe in like a radical form of love. And it was started by Lucius Walker, who was this radical black pastor um, who really viewed the economic blockade of Cuba uh, as a human rights issue. Mm. Um, It's the reality that the people of Cuba, the direct people of Cuba, um, moms, cousins, brothers, sisters, these are the people that are being affected by the decisions that the United States are making. um, And it's entirely problematic. They have some of the best medical care in the world and they can't help certain people because they don't have the medicine that they need because of the U.S. blockade. And Mm. so essentially the U.S. blockade uh, was implemented as a way to keep people from doing business with Cuba. Mm. Um, You can be fined lots of money for doing business with Cuba. Any any relationship you have with Cuba as a country can be punished by the United States. Mm. Um, It's something the U.N. has looked at and the only two places in the world that have voted against ending the blockade in Cuba because it is a humanitarian issue have been the United States and Israel. Okay. Got it. And when, do you know like about when this started and how long it's been going on? Uh, so the blockade was implemented by JFK. Okay. And has only grown with just kind of intensity since then. Mm-hmm. Um, so originally it was blocking out just a lot of like excess things. Now it really blocks medication, food, mm. um, really just any kind of uh, interaction with Cuba, which is horrible. They have to, in order to be able to buy like supplies for paint, they have to buy from Venezuela after Venezuela buys from the United States because the United States won't directly do business with Cuba. Okay. So it's super, yeah, it's wasteful too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. Like, horrible everything is, yeah, horrible. Um, okay. So what did you see while you were there? Like what did you experience? Were you in more of a city, suburbs, rural, like, yeah, yeah, what was it? We spent like? a lot of time rural. Uh, we landed in Olgun, um, and then we just continued to to stay in the area. We didn't make it over to Havana, unfortunately. A lot of people ask about Havana. Okay, did not make it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, but it was just really beautiful. Uh, there's this sense of community that is just integrated into all aspects of, of Cuban culture mm. um, in a way that you don't really see it here in the United States. And I think it's something you kind of also see with like Latin Americans living in the United States and like kind of how we have more dynamic family structures and we're really willing to like take care of more extended parts of our family. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something you see kind of culturally here in the United States as well, where just folks who are not typically from the American culture just have deeper family relations and like family types. Yeah. Um, 
But essentially, being in Cuba was really interesting because in talking to people about their culture, a lot of people talk about how I think of how this will affect my neighbor before I think of how this will affect me. Okay. And yeah. here in the United States, I feel like we really have a that's not my problem mentality. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. Just if, if I focus on me mm-hmm. and like maybe my immediate family, that's enough. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it's just interesting because in the place of like, I'm used to going down this, the road and you just see like McDonald's, Walmart, you're going to mm-hmm. see your gas stations. Um, it's not a lot of that. So. Cuba isn't a fuel crisis. Very hard to get fuel when the United States doesn't like you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So there is a bit of a fuel crisis, but going around, there's just a lack of of just advertisements and the business and the the usual things that you as an American are so programmed to like seeing constantly. There's just there's yeah there's nature and then the rare billboard that you do see it'll say something like community and solidarity. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It won't have just like an ad for what you can buy. Mm Hmm. Um. And then even like shopping and needing things, there's so many less items. There's far less selection, but it's got all the basics. Yeah. And it really makes you think of like how much we've just gone crazy with like capitalism and consumerism here. And choice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, No, it's, I mean, it definitely has been like that for a while, but I almost feel like since COVID or like the past like five to 10 years, it's like exploded and like with all the, I don't know, just like retail store. Like I'm just thinking like, Home goods and TJ Maxx and like the the ones that are like like reselling like the excess from other stuff. I'm like, where did this all come from? Yeah. Like, and I'm imagining it getting made somewhere. And yeah, it's it's gotten really excessive and I don't know, like not that high of quality. <laughs> yeah. Like, I don't know. It just sucks. Um, that is really interesting. So yeah, I guess what were your like activities while you were there? Like who did you talk to and Yeah, so we went to a lot of different activities. Our schedule was jam-packed. I did not honestly realistically think I could keep up, but mm. we were constantly going to like government ceremonies. Gail Walker, who's the daughter of Lucius Walker who still runs the Pastors for Peace trip. Uh we which part of what we do is we bring lots of medical supplies that are just like really difficult to get. Mm. Um even things as simple as like acetaminophen, like it's mm. it's just hard to it's hard to get. You can't just go to a pharmacy. There's no CVS. You can't just mm-hmm. buy it. Um, and so we run this trip to make sure that we're bringing all this aid with us. Um, Gail Walker is still the one who runs it. She's she's been arrested giving like testimony. Um, she's just a really powerful woman, and I just think of just how amazing she is every time i talk about this trip um Mm. and so she over there she's she's really she's she's held in high esteem yeah um we were able to go see the president speak twice uh we received special invitation to go see him speak uh Mm. and so gail was able to to make a speech uh in front of him and that was that was a really high honor um Mm. even just the way they do politics over there is just different though okay um where it's not like this intense like security police force right um so much as just like these bodies guards that they're just in like nice jeans and like a nice <laughs> nice button down and everybody seems the, the process is surprisingly chill okay um but yeah it was just just really amazing to be there and hear from all these different types of people we went to a lot of community spaces where there were like kids performing for us and like okay. dancing for us um and so at a certain point i was a little bit i held i was a little nervous because 
I don't want to be someone who's like performative. Uh, I don't want to be mm. just like, oh, I went to this country and like did. I didn't want to do charity. Yeah, it was then, like a mission trip. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's not how I wanted it to be. Um, so for me, I felt like this really helped tremendously with the amount of like decolonization efforts I've I've had personally. Mm. Um, I think that as a Puerto Rican that has grown up in Buffalo, there's a lot of the parts of the culture that I don't connect with and. Um, it definitely feels like a loss for me. Like, I'm not going to have the same experience that, like, my great-grandparents did. Mm-hmm. Um, which, to an extent, there's some really great things about that. And then there's some really, like, harsh things about that. Yeah. Um, so it made me feel a lot more connected to just, like, the Caribbean. And what was beautiful about Cuba was that there's a tremendous solidarity for Puerto Ricans in Cuba, where it's just, like, we are not free until Puerto Rico is also free and no mm. longer, like, a colony of the United States. Yeah, um, for sure. And that's something that is really beautiful because I have been to Puerto Rico also. And so when I think about like Puerto Rico and Cuba in my mind, they are very similar. They're they're very mm. close together geographically. Um, but they both kind of suffer from a similar similar disease. You know, the United States controls Puerto Rico and to an extent like has forced it to rely on a plantation economy mm. and a tourist economy. Yeah. And so when crisis hits, uh, we've seen how Donald Trump acted with like tossing paper towels mm-hmm. in Puerto Rico. It was disgusting. Mm-hmm. Um, when you take that kind of concept of the United States is running things, um, they're not, they don't have very much. So they're still struggling. They, right. they are allowed to have a little bit more, but they're still struggling. Mm-hmm. Whereas like Cuba is not allowed to have very much at all at the hands of the United States, but they're they're doing so much more with so much less because mm. there's this mentality of like this is our community and like we're gonna figure it out. Right. Um. They have community gardens where it's very they're very aware that because they have such little access that there is so little like economic uh stimulation coming from outside that they have to take care of one another and figure it out and. Uh, it was really beautiful to go to the community garden, too, because the the sense of just, like, solidarity with each other there is really beautiful. Okay. Yeah, what were they growing? Or, like, what was the setup like um, for so the it was community all, garden? All sorts of stuff. One of the things that I definitely would love to see is if we could get some additional, like, medical aid in the way of what is needed for domesticated animals on farms. Because mm. you can definitely see that the animals aren't the healthiest yeah they need more like, and it yeah, comes from supplies the fact that, like, yeah, and supplies people stuff. can't yeah. get medicine animals right definitely exactly yeah um but it was really beautiful so there's a lot of livestock um just all of the beautiful tropical fruits you can imagine i oh, had so wow. much mango while i was there oh wow and that good mango where it's actually like orange yeah, and delicious exactly um but then Juicy. seeing things that are also familiar like I, I saw aloe plants while i was there and it's just that idea of of growing the medicine that you need and mm-hmm. the, the, the food that you need and food is also medicine yeah for sure so was it like i don't know i'm trying to picture it like physically like was it like fenced in or was it more of like a like big trees that had like larger fruit or were people like walking around so to describe it so it's the backdrop is all of the mountains all the mountains in cuba just very hilly very beautiful amazing landscape Mm. um then you see there's a lot of livestock which is mostly made out of like fences that are made of like sticks and um just just basic things okay a lot of like using cactus as natural fencing right that makes sense yeah Yeah. and so then you go down um some of this like dusty dirt road there's like free-ranging goats just hanging out walking around (laughs) Uh, and you go by these little like uh little little cabins and little homesteads uh of different folks that are a part of this essential like community 
garden, people that are all living there working together. Um, and then more when you go by like the houses, that's actually where more of like the, the fruit and stuff is grown. Oh, okay. Um, there's a lot of like using clay to help get the water to where it needs to go. Mm, mm-hmm. That's so cool. Yeah. No, I, I've been on a gardening kick lately, but it does get really tiring to do it alone. And so I think like the community gardening piece is definitely important because yeah, one person can't take care of all the plants. <laughs> like right, right. Even two, it's like, it's tricky. So yeah, yeah, getting more people in to like share. And then you have so much food, like it, like if and when it's successful, like you have to like distribute it. So mm-hmm. that's really cool. Um, I guess that did answer my next question, but if you have anything else to add, like what did you notice about, um, yeah, specifically focus on sustainability and community building. So any other pieces there? Yeah. So I would guess I would also say that because they know that tourists are of high esteem when they come in, they're also like a business opportunity because Mm -hmm. there is so little interaction. Um, So there's a lot of like arts and crafts that are like reduced, reuse, recycled. Mm. Um, And so a lot of these like little community fairs, it's just a lot of like moms, aunts, stuff like that, making like bracelets and little dolls out of just like recycled materials. Um, And they sell them for super cheap. I yeah. was just like, I cannot believe that is the price. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to give you more money than what you said because that doesn't make sense to me. Right, right. Um, but it's also just beautiful in the sense that we're doing beautiful things with things that other people would view as trash. Mm, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that for me is really beautiful for the environmental aspect of it because cultures... Um, a lot of communities of color, a lot of low income communities have always figured out how to make beautiful out of out of trash. And um, environmentally, like we have to be able to think of like the full life cycle of the things that we produce. Right. And I think as Americans, we are not ingrained with that mentality. It's just we're yeah. just going to throw it out. And like once it's being thrown out, I don't think about anything that has to do with this product ever again. Exactly. There's no connection to yeah the whole cycle. Right. Yeah. That's really cool. Um And yeah, I definitely, it brings up a lot. Like I'm thinking about a lot of things because I mean, even, yeah, there seems to be a little bit of an obsession or focus for some people on like recycling, but it's like, if you didn't reuse it, like your recycling can like get blown up, like Mm -hmm. more, you know, it can just get really excessive. Like, but if you are able to, yeah, repurpose and reuse and, and then make something beautiful out of it, I think beauty is definitely something I've been thinking about more lately and like just being like important unto itself and like a part of yeah the human condition and then just being really in the present moment so yeah I like what you said about that yeah um okay so yeah we're moving right along and about halfway through um I'm curious about what you want to see happen in the Western New York bioregion. So if you want to talk about Buffalo specifically, I'm totally down. But like Western New York, Great Lakes, even Canada, this whole area, like what do you want to see happen? Yeah, I definitely want to see us have a good climate change like process put into place like a plan a a plan would be great Mm -hmm. um one of the things that i got to see while i was in cuba is that they're very aware of how climate change is going to affect cuba they are a tropical island they know yeah um it made me think of puerto rico and how like the people making decisions about puerto rico do not live in puerto rico Mm -hmm. they are old white men in the united states that don't believe climate change exists yeah um which is one of the other reasons that i'm just like 
we have to we have to stop being a u.s colony this is ridiculous yeah Um, because again it's just you're making decisions about a group of people that you are not going to be faced with the reality of what it is like to live there yeah and that's what's happening in puerto rico um so i would like to see for for western york specifically uh as well uh uh a climate change plan being put in place because Buffalo, Western New York, we have a lot of access to fresh water. Mm-hmm. Um, we are going to see a tremendous amount of like climate change refugees coming into this area. We already have refugees that come in from other places, but once it's more climate specific, right. we have a lot more. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I've talked about this in the past and I feel like it is like, it's kind of like gone up and down and like how ridiculous I am, you know, like, oh, like she's totally crazy to like, oh my gosh, like she's right. And it's like now it's been years of that. But I, yeah, I, I'm glad that you brought it up um, because, yep, there's a lot of fresh water here. There's a lot of electricity here. <laughs> like uh-huh. it's a really like, it's an amazing place. And I think, yeah, but can you speak a little bit to, I think, I mean, a lot of people don't even realize how um, how there is so many um, immigrants and refugees here already. But could you speak to that a little bit? Um, yeah. So I have been ingrained in so many things that it's something I've not even paid that much attention to. But just like living in the area as a Western New Yorker, like I've pretty much my entire life been living in university districts. So I lived on Stockbridge and now I live on Shirley just to be in proximity to my family. Um, and it's traditionally always been a black neighborhood. Um, we were always like the lonely, only Puerto Rican family on the street. Um, which was fine. I talk I talk at length about how I've always felt like a lot more taken in by like the black community than I ever did like the Latino community growing up just because those were, those were the people we were around. Your neighbors. By yeah. proximity. Yeah, that's how you form community. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. So just in, in recent years, just seeing the demographic shift of, of university districts. So there's a lot more black and brown folks. Uh, well, a lot more brown folks instead of just, just traditionally like having black folks in the area. Um, and something that I've actually heard come up a lot is that a lot of folks are starting to, to feel a little bit of a tension where they feel like there's there's programs for people who are, are coming into the east side um, or in into just the general Buffalo area. But there's not a lot of programs to like stimulate economy and business for the people who are already here Mm, um and i think part of that is because the way we we structure things like we don't want it to be that oh our representatives are not doing enough for us it's that oh because these new brown folks are here they're taking away from us the black folks that have already been here got it um and so i really want to just like call some light of like we can have both. We can have programs that are good for the people that are coming here, but right. also we can like force our representatives to give us stuff for the people that are already here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me of, um, I was, some, I was a person that was talking about like designing something for people that like need the most. Um, and that will actually like the people that maybe need less can still use it or like whatever. But like, if you're really like designing a program, like for prosperity or community building or whatever, like, yeah, how do you make it so that it is accessible to everyone instead of Mm -hmm. a particular group? Yeah. But yeah, I really am amazed by, um, I mean, the segregation here for sure, Mm -hmm. like just suburbs versus city and like, growing up in places that were like 99% white and then realizing that, yeah, like just Buffalo has such a rich history that's still evolving. And then 
14213 being like a zip code where like UN resettlement refugees are placed like right away was just, um, yeah, really eye opening to me. And then, yeah, when I think about climate change and like more people like happening, like this is, and then also the population loss of this place too over time. Like there is actually, that was something that really grabbed me back in like 2016 starting this podcast was like oh wow there actually is space for people like mm-hmm. there is water for people there is electricity for people um but it is more of the social and like community building aspect of like how do we all organize or coordinate or like meet everybody's needs and that i mean it's being talked about it's not like it's totally ignored but it it's still really yeah. a long haul mm-hmm. um yeah. Okay. Do you want to say anything else about what you want to see in this bioregion? Um, um, I think that's, that, that's, that's a good one. Okay. I'm like, did I cut her off? Okay. So, yeah. Wh- so this is a pretty broad question, but what have you been focusing your attention on lately? Like, it can be any any scale, yeah. <laughs> any topic. Um, so I've, I've got two things that I think I'm really, really passionate about. Um, so I am in the process of working with El Bete and Wakanda Alliance to try to start uh, scholarship programs for um, young Latino folks to be able to go to Cuba on the Pastors for Peace trip like I did. Because again, mm. I don't want to be someone who's just like extractive and is like, I had this experience <laughs> and it was a cool vacation and that's it. Um, I really want to see it be used as an opportunity for like other kids in Western New York, New York to decolonize their mindsets a little bit and be able to, to expand. Um, I think one of the cool things that I was able to do when I got back from the trip was like I sat down and listened to like Malcolm X talk about his experiences with like meeting Fidel Castro and like the importance of when like Fidel Castro came to the United States, he stood in Harlem um, and met with like black leadership. And it was an important moment of like international solidarity and like we can have amazing things and build stronger revolutions like when we work together. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really want to see more kids from Western New York going on that trip and see how they come back different and see what they want to build. Yeah. Um, but I also want to see it be like a, a scholarship that any recipient continues to like help build. So after you go as a scholarship recipient, you come back and you help fundraise money for the next person. Right, right. Okay. Um, and then I also am working on uh, political education. Um, right now, it is still just living in document form. It's on, mm-hmm. it's on the Google Drive. Okay. Um, I started making some slides for it, too. But I really want to focus on how local politics work here in Western New York. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us know the names of some of the, the main characters of political uh, yeah. actions and stuff. And it's more, but it is like a little more of a persona or like mm-hmm. a meme versus like a yeah what is their role right what do they have control over right and so so many people don't know and i think i work with a lot of folks who also have like the same questions uh and i wanted to create something that people can just take use for free and like train up their people if they want to make social change um i want to make sure people know who our mayor is who our common council is who our board of ed is what decisions they oversee and have like the power to make and like what things they have succeeded on lately and what things they have failed on. Because if we don't know how our local government is making decisions, we don't know who we go after for, for the issues that exist in our communities. Right. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with you. And um, definitely like back, like doing the podcast with like the ballot reviews and things like that with mm-hmm. John, like that was, that's definitely the purpose of, of that. So I'm super glad that you're putting it into document form and word form because 
it is so important and it is confusing, but then I don't know. I've definitely like with kind of like news cycle overwhelm and just like what to pay it, what to pay attention to and stuff. It's like trying to pay attention to issues that are within my control. And that mm-hmm. usually does go to local government. Yep. Um, and then one more thing on that, I just, one of the most impactful classes I did have growing up um, in high school was participation in government. It was mm-hmm. actually like, yeah, the teacher was really effective. <laughs> like he did a really good job, but that was like going to your local council meetings and things mm-hmm. like that and having to take notes and pay attention. We didn't have to just talk, but um, yeah, like the stuff that's really going on in your community like is happening in those spaces. So um that was one of the questions I had for you. So I, I also saw recently that you did like a tenants rights, like booklet or you had something got printed out. You were like offering, oh, what is that? So I ordered uh, a lot of copies of the tenants rights guys. So fun fact, you can go online and you can get uh, tenants rights guides from New York state for free. You can get them in any language. Um, apparently it does take several months for them to send it to you. <laughs> uh, I ordered a bunch from when I was doing uh, actions at McCarley gardens and like trying to help folks get trained up on, on what rights they had. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's another one of those things where it's just like, we don't really know how things operate on a local level. So it's just, mm-hmm. I didn't know I could get hundreds of copies of this and just give them away to people. Mm. Um, and so once we're able to like break into the things that we now know exist, like we're better able to help people. Yeah. Um, so another, another resource that we had that people yeah. might have not even known about. Right. And that really, I mean, I'm, guessing but it explains to people like if they're renting like what they Mm -hmm. what their landlord is responsible for and yeah kind of the recourse that they might have if it's not being met yeah because that is a huge huge issue yeah a lot of everywhere here too but yeah everywhere. yeah the tenants guys are good they definitely use a lot of like academic language just because they are rights guides so i mean i would like to see at some point like a little more pop ed or like a little more accessible yeah Okay. Well, I'm excited about your political education document. Um, That's going to be really good. Yeah, it's a great idea. Um, Okay, we're almost towards the end, but I do want to know, what are your thoughts on the Barbie movie? We happened to see it on the same day. And I've seen it again since because I was like, wait, what? But yeah, I just, yeah, what what are your thoughts? I loved the Barbie movie. Um, I took my nieces and my mom. And so we all went together to go see it. Uh, One of my nieces was a little bit younger. So there were definitely jokes that she did not understand. That's Um, okay. But it was okay. She still had a great time. She was like pink, fun, love it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then my older niece was just, she's a year older. uh, You could tell that she was laughing at jokes that she did understand. And I'm like, oh, I hate that. I hate that she's able to laugh at that joke. Uh, Oh, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Um, she already gets it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But I did. I really liked the Barbie movie. Um, One of my complaints uh, unofficially as someone who is named Kelly is that Barbie has a little sister named Kelly and there was not a nary a Kelly in the Barbie movie. Right. Yeah. There's Stacy, right? But not not a Kelly. Yeah. yeah, There was Skipper. Skipper was in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, The weird weird Barbie who was like the pregnant Barbie. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually hilarious because I laughed so hard when I saw that they had the pregnant Barbie in the movie because... Uh I was a child when the pregnant Barbie came out and I... To this day, I'm really like on the fence about if I want kids or not, but I wanted the pregnant Barbie <laughs> desperately. And like I was I was not a kid who threw like a lot of tantrums about toys or anything. Yeah. But like I cried so hard because I wanted the pregnant Barbie and my mom was just like, that's such a weird purchase. No. <laughs> well, because that's what they said is like discontinued for being weird. But that is funny that you actually wanted it. I did want the like a stuffed animal dog that had puppies. Mm-hmm. So I guess I was in that realm. Yeah. Puppy surprise. That was my. Yeah. 
that. My thing. But that's super funny. Because it didn't ring a bell to me, but the um we had the barbie and ken's uh rollerblading outfits mm-hmm. like that yeah, was, like it. so that was a trip to see in mm. <laughs> real life on the big screen yes. like, oh my god no it is just so funny to see it on screen because like you think about like the way you played with dolls when you're a kid and like it's pretty real to like how you play with dolls like mm-hmm. weird barbie everybody has weird at yeah. least one weird barbie or at least a couple oh my gosh i know yeah, no, yeah. We, we did have weird Barbies. Yeah, no, and honestly, like, they're not here anymore. Like, we gave them to another, like, group mm-hmm. of, like, they're, everything was in a red suitcase, and we gave them all away. So, but it's been fun to reminisce with my sister about, like, the Barbies that we shared and yeah. the evolution of them. My mom used to have to put my initial on the back of my Barbie doll's head because me and my siblings would, like, beef over whose oh. stuff was whose. <laughs> um, no, but I really, I did like the movie. I thought it, it brought like a childlike um, vibe back to like a woman's movie. Like mm-hmm. I as a woman really wanted to go see the Barbie movie. But like the way that they, they move the Barbies where she's like, yeah, she doesn't walk down the stairs. She, she just descends because mm-hmm. you, don't, you don't have your Barbie walk down the stairs. That right. That happen. Exactly. Um, <laughs> but it was really cute. And it was also just such a like with your mom kind of movie. I saw it with my mom too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, we we cried. We held hands. Oh, it was, it was really nice. I just think it's it was definitely a good like intergenerational movie where like I yeah. like that my nieces were watching it and there was the little girl who's just like we don't play with Barbies mm-hmm. and then her friends like I liked Barbie and yeah. then they just like shade her because that's so what it's like being at that age where it's like I do still like toys but like I can't yeah. like toys because I'm older now. Mm-hmm. I know, I know. I've definitely been, yeah, like video games the past couple of years and stuff have just sort of been embracing my inner child but it is funny it's like it's still inside of me <laughs> like yep. and I guess yeah just Barbies being around like what was it like the mid 50s or something mm-hmm. like all the way to the present like that is a long run for like right. women and then yeah just being the doll I love the opening scene mm-hmm. where like yeah they start like beating their like baby dolls yes. <laughs> I was like oh that's really true like mm-hmm. I really did relate because I had like a couple baby dolls but no I wanted to play with Barbie yeah. like she had her shit together yeah. um, Barbie was also very accessible so like as a kid I had Barbies because you can you can get Barbies where Forever. you can get yeah. Barbies at like a dollar store mm-hmm. um I really wanted an American Girl doll when I was a kid but oh. we were poor so we couldn't afford one um yep. but I just wanted one desperately and so uh <sighs> they were finally able to get me one when I was like 11 12 yeah and I played with it so much longer than I even wanted to because I was just like they bought it for me and oh, now I have to right <laughs> and you're getting a little later I have some yep American Girl um stories basically it was in second grade and I really wanted a Samantha doll um but I didn't tell my parents I just wrote a letter to Santa and like mailed it Mm -hmm. and then I didn't get it and so I like had a meltdown over not knowing there like yeah that yeah so it was I mean, the Santa Claus story comes up in my book. Yeah, I defended Santa for way too long, but the American Girl was like my test and it it failed. Yeah, I didn't get it. I I think a lot of like the social justice kids struggled with Santa because it's that idea of like, oh, someone who just really wants to do nice, cool things for people. Mm -hmm. And like you want to believe in that so bad, but it is just not a reality in capitalism. (laughs) 
But then capitalism is all around you telling you it's real. Yeah. So like, and that's the, that was the thing for me. I was like, oh my God, everyone's in on this. Like mm-hmm. TV, like church, like the yep. mall, like food, like all of my relatives. It was just like, I do still remember like the layers of that crashing down on me mm-hmm. of the realization of like how many people were like being disingenuous. Yep. Like. <laughs> That's why I always liked Halloween as a kid because I was like, everybody is trying to scare the shit out of you, but everybody's also trying to give you candy. (laughs) And like, that's such a cool like holiday when you're like a poor kid because it's like, oh, I'm gonna go door to door and people are just gonna give me candy. Yeah, cool. Exactly. Yeah. No, that Halloween is better. It really is. Mm -hmm. And then it. Yep. And I like how it ages. Like, I feel like Christmas kind of ages weird. Um, but Halloween, like, you can still embrace it yeah. in a really good way. And, yeah, candy's better. Um, okay, well, thank you for all that. No, I really did like the movie. I haven't been interested in a movie, like, in a while. Um, yeah. I can't really remember the last time. And and I do feel like it really made me think. Um, and I haven't talked about anybody talked about it with anyone on this podcast yet so i'm glad yeah Yeah. oh i also i mean we haven't talked about this at all but i really did like the um commentary on ken also and just like i liked how they like brought it all together at the end i thought there were good messages for like how you know just appearances and structures and yeah barbie and everything and patriarchy i guess has just impacted both women and men i thought that was yeah yeah <laughs> and it I was had, it was like fun but also like really deep yeah. <laughs> like really deep. there was a great commentary that someone was talking about on tiktok about how how men are actually alan and how like mm. uh men li- like the real men like women and like they want they want barbie to succeed yeah but they don't really know how because they're like i don't subscribe to these toxic masculinity like ken standards but like i'm just alan yeah right yeah oh yeah no alan was great um, yeah i i didn't know about alan before mm-hmm. the barbie movie i didn't know about any of the kens really ken was not an important part of our barbie experience no. the only one that i knew about uh like one of the discontinued dolls was like the the club ken one, oh which it's it's supposed to be modeled off like rave culture but in reality it was modeled off like gay men culture in oh, in, in, in clubs and so uh one of yeah uh he has a little bit more of an eccentric backstory that I don't know if it's appropriate for the okay. podcast. So y'all can look that up. Okay. No, they Barbie and Ken went wild like sometimes. It, that was something I definitely learned from that movie. I'm like, oh, I missed out on a lot of those. Oh, it was funny. Yeah, Ken um, was never a focus. It was just it's Barbie. It's all about Barbie, yeah. Um, okay, so we're actually at the end. Um, the last two questions I ask everyone. Um, where do you experience in yourself or society Is it back? Okay. Yeah. Old microphone wires. Okay. So where do you experience in yourself or society a world that is dying and then one that's being born to take its place? (laughs) I feel like everywhere in society, we kind of feel the way the world is dying. Um, With just like the amount of things that we see like produced around us that are very temporary. Um, the way it's becoming like the hottest summer every summer. Um, mm-hmm. It's just kind of, it's sad to see. It's sad to see. It's it's the the idea that like 
our landscape for children is always going to be like cement and McDonald's versus like natural landscapes that they can play on and enjoy. Mm. Um, those conversations of like, why don't kids play outside and just want to be on technology all day? And it's like, oh, well, the world we built outside for them is horrible. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, where I see things being rebuilt Anytime I feel really discouraged about the way things are going, I like to just go talk to young people for a little while. Yeah. Um, I feel like it always is very redeeming to go talk to young people because the ideas are always just way better. Like when, when I was in that climate change presentation in Cuba, like there were kids talking about how like um, they feel on pollution and mm. climate change. And mm-hmm. it's just refreshing to hear that like for all of these bad ideas that we've held on to for so long, there are so many new fresh ideas on how we can change things. Um, I don't know if we're going to run out the clock on climate change or not, but I'm hoping for the best because young people have really great ideas and I, I think we can change things at any time. Thank you. Yeah, I, I agree with you and I really do. Um, yeah, I think young people have really amazed me, um, over the years and yeah, there's something very like, cause yeah, when I was a kid, I had, like, no idea what climate change was, and then it was exposed to me, like, you know, older, like, it was exposed to me in college, like, mm. and, but to now talk with um, 10-year-olds that, like, know about climate change and, yeah, have opinions on it, it's, like, they don't have the same opinions as I imagine myself would have or something mm. like that, so it is really cool. Um, yeah, I'm I'm definitely right there with you, and yeah, something about younger people just having more of a grounded presence. Like, they just, yeah, there's something more, like, present moment about a lot of their energy. So, thank you. Um, okay, so I'm going to give you the last word, and I want you to say any sort of parting thoughts Um like, where people could find you. Also, like, for listeners, whatever you want to do to... Uh, say the last word it's it's yours yeah okay um i'm definitely i'm on social media my email is kelly k-e-l-l-y camacho c-a-m-a-c-h-o the number five at gmail.com i switched to just using my personal email because yep work work changes but i will always personal email (laughs) i feel that too someone email me besides ads like that would be nice Yeah, um, so I will be participating in a suicide prevention walk on September 23rd. Always looking for more people to walk or donate. Um, Working on the political education, so if you want to get in on that, is either someone who can use it as a training once it's complete or someone who wants to contribute. Um, More than welcome to have other eyes on this other than just mine. (laughs) I'm definitely going to look at it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yep, have a good one. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you for listening to the Keeping Things Alive podcast. For more information about sustainability, this podcast, and my book, Silent Seasons, Chasing Sustainability Through the Law, please visit www.keepingthingsalive.org.